Welcome. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm filling in this week for Tim. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word. Be with us. Send your spirit to guide our conversation, to be with our thoughts, to help those around us see you more clearly. Amen. So this is the beginning of a new quarter, and um, we're going to cover the introduction and then um, the, the lesson number one. The title for this quarter is Preparation for the End Time. I don't know about you, but there are certain topics that I don't like to talk about. Okay? There are certain things I don't like to read, you know. Um, that's as a combination of several reasons. I'm sure you have your own. Um, my mother was very fearful of the end time, and she instilled that fear in her four children. I can remember being sat at my mother's feet, and this is what we're going to do when that such and such happens. You know, here's where we're going to run. Here's where we're going to all meet. Here's what, whatever. And these elaborate plans that maybe were well-intentioned, but struck really fear in the heart of this little child. So I, I didn't like that. Most of the devotional talks that I grew up with before I got married, you know, 20s or whatever, um, were fear-based about the end time, you know? And even when you read the Bible, it doesn't help you a lot sometimes because it mentions several bad things that, you know, are going to happen. And so, you know, how do you come to grips with the end time? It's interesting. I have just, before I realized this, I was going to be teaching this lesson. About a month ago, I was remarking to someone that within the last three years, I had heard zero sermons on the second coming of Christ. Something we should be looking forward to, I had not heard anything about. Heard a lot of other things, got good sermons, sermon series or whatever, but the coming of Christ had just been vacant. And I think it's largely because people don't like the thoughts of it. So how have I come to grips with this topic? Number one, fear, as we've talked about in this class before, fear and selfishness are the opposite of love. And if truly you're working on other-centered love, you will worry less about what happens to you or what's going on around you or whatever, except as it relates to how you're ministering to someone else. I think I need to take focus away from myself, which that's not where it's supposed to be anyway, okay, and put it on someone else as far as helping them. The second thing I've come to grips with is that Christ, when he was approaching Gethsemane, was not joyful. In fact, oh Lord, if I could be spared from this, you know, and even Gethsemane, I mean, he did not look forward to Gethsemane. On the road to Gethsemane, if you read Mrs. White's writings about that evening, he was stumbling under the burden of going to Gethsemane. And so I don't think we need to be joyful about something that may happen to us, but we don't know what's going to happen to us. Now, he knew what was going to happen to him, okay? We don't know what's going to happen to us. My parents, both deceased, firmly believed that they were going to live through some terrible times and be persecuted, blah, 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 blah. You know, that never happened. My mother expended years of worry and frustration about what was going to happen, and it never happened to her. The fact that Christ didn't look forward to negative things in his life, you know, that's human. But he brought his thoughts to his father. He trusted his father's word. He rested on assurances given by God and depended upon him for the outcome and future. If there was anyone ever that has lived the life of the moment, it was Christ. The moment to the full, not living in the future, not living in the past, but living in that moment, day by day living in that moment. The other thing that I've been reassured with regarding the coming um, time of the end or whatever is um, the story that you read in the Bible. 
What is your favorite story of God's protection in the Bible? Daniel. Daniel? Daniel Lion's Den? You know, um, that's great, but not many of us are going to be put in a lion's den. Okay? The three worthies in the furnace. You said Adam and Eve. That's not a typical one. Tell me more. They were given the promise of a coming redeemer for okay. humanity, which calmed their fears about what they had done. It allayed some of the guilt that they were feeling. Sister White says that Eve looked with every birth of every child, she thought, maybe this is the coming redeemer. This is the redeemer. So it gave our first parents and thus the rest of humanity hope, the promise and hope. Uh, and, and even though they may not have seen it, the removal from the garden, the removal from the tree of life, the laying of loved ones into the grave, th- these were all things that God did to protect humanity. Okay, very well. Yes? How about Joseph and a couple of many colors? He was protected in Egypt many times by his faith. Okay. Yes? Well, a couple things, uh, images of, that really speak to me is uh, his covering us with his wings and is watching the, the uh, sparrow, you know, that he, he is concerned in, about each one of us and wants to protect us. He sees a sparrow fall. Surely he has love for us even more than many sparrows, you know. All right, so there's two stories that I like, okay? And since I'm the teacher, I get to talk about those, Okay. <laughs> Number one is 2 Kings 6. Now, in this scenario, this is Elisha. Elisha and his servant in the city of Dothan. And the king Aram was out to conquer Israel. And every time that the king um, of Aram was heading someplace to do a military campaign, God would send a message to Elisha. And Elisha would tell the king... Hey, don't go there. Get all your troops away. And he did. And it it said, it didn't just happen once or twice. This happened over and over again. And the king was really upset. And so what did he do? He says, okay, I'm going to go get Elisha. And he went at night, 2 Kings 6. He went at night and surrounded the town with his chariots. And Elisha's servant went out that morning and saw the chariots and says, oh, Lord. What am I going to do? And Elisha said, open my servant's eyes. And he saw, he said, there's more on our side than on theirs. You know, and so you think there are many times things happening around you that you do not see. Another time that wasn't miraculous in the sense of, open the eyes or seeing something you didn't see or whatever. But think about the children of Israel. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Okay? Now they've been told, okay, we're going to go home. We're, we're going to um, go into the, the promised land. And they come up to edge of the promised land. And what happened? The king sent to the east... For a magician to come down and curse them. A magician that had miraculous powers and knew God. Balaam. Okay? We think about Balaam and his donkey. Okay? And that's about all we know about Balaam. But in reading the story about Balaam this week, um, okay, here's the children of Israel camped out in a valley. Okay? That's not a militarily protected position. Okay? The king and his troops and his officers and Balaam are up on the hillside surrounding the valley. Okay? Children of Israel did not know a single thing about it. Okay? These bad things were up against them they had no clue about. And yet... They didn't know a single thing about it. And yet God was intervening on their behalf about things they didn't even know. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 443, 
The king escorted Balaam to the high places of Baal from which he surveyed the Hebrew host. Behold the prophet as he stands upon the lofty height, looking down over the encampment of God's chosen people. How little do the Israelites know of what is taking place so near them? How little do they know of the care of God extended over them by day and by night? How dull are their perceptions of God's people? How slow are they in every age to comprehend his great love and mercy? If they could discern the wonderful power of God constantly exerted in their behalf, would not their hearts be filled with gratitude for his love and with awe at the thought of his majesty and power? The story of Balaam, you know? And then in Numbers twenty three nineteen, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it, and he hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. You know, here was Balaam trying to curse him, and he wasn't permitted to, and he and the king was not allowed to hurt them. Okay? Totally unaware. They were just camped in their tents or whatever. What hath God wrought? While they were under the divine protection, no people or nation, though aided by all the power of Satan, should be able to prevail against them. All the world should wonder of the marvelous work of God in behalf of his people. That a man, determined to pursue a sinful course, should be so controlled by divine power as to utter, instead of imprecations, the richest and most precious promises in the language of sublime and impassioned poetry. And the favorite of God at that time manifested toward Israel was to be an assurance of his protecting care for his obedient and faithful children in all ages. When Satan should inspire evil men to represent, harass, and destroy God's people, this very occurrence should be brought to their remembrance and would strengthen their courage and their faith in God. I just, you know, incredible. You know, one of my favorite memory verses when I was a little kid was Psalms 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth around about them that fear him and delivereth them. And I always envisioned that the angel was there doing kind of like what he did for Elisha. You know, and fighting the armies and all that sort of stuff, etc. And then I went to college and one of my college classmates died. And I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, at that time, an in-gathering party was struck head on and several people were killed. And, and so it's like, wait a minute. Uh, this doesn't match. Okay? And so that had brought questions to my mind. I think we ought to talk about that a little bit as we go through the lesson today. Um, we come to grips with, you know, how do we come to understand that? In the lesson, in the introduction on page three, it says, we need to know not only that it will come to pass and that when it does, we must be prepared. How? Perhaps the best answer is found in this text. As you therefore have received Christ, the Lord... So walk in him, Colossians 2, 6. In other words, with so many world events, so many headlines, so many theories about end times, it's easy to get diverted, focusing too much on the things that we think are leading to Christ's coming instead of on Christ himself, who alone is the key to our preparation. The real focus is on Jesus, but in the context of the last days and how to be prepared for them. It's about him. It's not about us. So lesson number one for this week is called the cosmic controversy. Our memory verse, Revelation 12, 17. Some of you probably can speak that from memory because that was a memory text that I had to do over and over again. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Sabbath afternoon had, first paragraph said, the cosmic controversy, sometimes called the great controversy, is the biblical worldview. Do you realize that's not an accepted idea? To me, that's the only way the Bible makes sense. Okay? But that's not 
you know, all accepted. They go on to the various questions, whatever, but my question is, what is the question in the controversy? What's the controversy over? The character and government of God. That's what I've come to believe, but that's not what the quarterly says. I always think of the, of the child that goes, that's not fair. That's what Satan is saying about God. It's not fair. <laughs> okay, but is the, is the controversy over a rebellious child? Or is it over God? Can God be trusted? Can, yeah, can God be trusted? Is, what is his character like? Why can't God just leave Satan alone? Because Satan won't leave us alone. I have a hint. In the end, he will. And we are being prepared for that image. If, we, if the universe was not prepared for that image, they would think differently of God than they would do now. Of what's going to happen to Satan when he is left alone. If truly what's going to happen to Satan is something that is built into the fabric of how the universe is made. If this is not an imposed punishment, if this truly is him being left alone to his devices and what happens to him when he's being left alone, he will die. When he's allowed to show his true colors. Well, also, when he, when he dies, it will not be because God is... Okay? It will be because... He's reaping the results of separation from the life giver. But even though he's been exiled from heaven, he's still being kept alive by God's grace and love and power and design law, etc., etc. He has not been fully let go yet. We are on artificial, and he is in artificial life support. Right. He's in a fake environment in which he is not reaping the results of his choices. Okay? And when he reaps the, the results of his choices, that's not going to be pretty. And without the understanding that the universe now has as a result of Christ and his death, the great controversy has played out on this earth, people, the universe, and other intelligent beings as well as humankind, would not have understanding of who God is, as they will at this point. Yes, Dennis? If you take that analogy one step further, though, how, you know, in our world today, we talk about keeping people on artificial life support, that it really, in many cases, may be cruel to do that. How is it not cruel for God to continue ma maintaining Satan on artificial support and not just let it go? And it is if the entire family is not prepared to pull the plug. Okay? I think at the cross, the angelic host were now prepared to pull the plug. But, in Mrs. White's terms, there were still questions to be answered. And I think that's why the plug has not been pulled. And at some point in the future, God will say, it is finished. All the questions have been answered. All the evidence has been given. We're going to pull the plug. Yes? Well, maybe Satan will pull the plug. It'd be his choice. I've got a fairly strong opinion that God wouldn't damn anyone but allow you to make your own choices. Several years back, there was an instance in which an individual, the husband, his wife was on life support and he pulled the plug and he was accused of murder. Okay? And yet, there are instances in which everyone agrees this is not the right thing to do. To, to, it is torture to keep this going or whatever. And it's appropriate to pull the plug. But that has to be a consensus issue. Otherwise it is described as being murder. Okay? In light of the great conflict, what is good news? What is the gospel? Many times the gospel is depicted as 
Christ has died for your sins and now you can be saved. Is that good news? Yes. Yes, that is good news. Okay? But, if God is the character that he's been made out to be, would it be good news for you to live forever with him? That would be hell. Okay? To live with a vengeful, judgmental, critical being for all your life. You know, some people have had the misfortune of getting the wrong life partner. Okay? And they have said that that's um, a foretaste. Um, (laughs) Having said that, that's in essence what many people view as living with God. Okay? Because their concept of God is of a vengeful, critical, judgmental, you know, powerful, you know, vindictive individual. And if truly God was like that, then it would not be good news for me to live forever with that being. The last paragraph, in speaking of the controversy, says... The good news is that one day it will not only end, but it will end with a total victory of Christ over Satan. The even better news is that because the completeness of what Christ did on the cross, all of us can share in that victory. The even better news, finally, as part of that victory, God calls us to faith and obedience as we await all that we have been promised in Jesus, whose coming is assured. I'd like to Talk about sharing in a victory. When do we share in a victory? When we've been part of the team. Okay, yeah, but... Um, okay, there are some people around here who like Alabama as a college football team. When Alabama wins a championship, do the fans share in the victory? Yes. What do they do? Tear it down for They celebrate, but in what part do they have in gaining that championship? None. (laughs) Is this comparable to the great controversy? Only if they're playing Auburn. The point I'd like to, to be is that we are not only fans here. We are participants. Absolutely. And our lives either forward the argument on one side of the argument or the other. You know, we hear about the term voting with your feet. Okay? We are voting with our feet for one team or the other. And that according to what we understand, is part of the evidence. So it's, it's more than just Alabama, which my son lives there, but feels embarrassed to be there. <laughs> Sometimes when Bubba tells him this thing or that thing. But in that arena, we have nothing really to contribute unless you're there in the stands making noise to, to divert the other team. I mean, that's, yes, that probably has some effect, okay? But me yelling at the television does not. Now, in the end of the controversy, how can God or Satan declare victory? If this is a military-like campaign, can God not accomplish a victory by display and use of his immense and creative and physical power? This is not about force. If God were truly like the person Satan made him out to be, would you want to live eternally with him? If God won a physical victory without answering the question of his character, would there be peace in heaven or the universe? At one time, I was going to, as part of preparing for the lesson, I was going to bring a graphic. They just released a map of the universe. And it's mind-boggling. 
how far it is from one edge of the universe to the other and this map of where we are and everything else. I think it's something like 250 million light years away from where we are over to this other spot they found, whatever. And it's like, really? You know, I can't even comprehend that distance. Sunday's lesson, the fall of a perfect being, essentially covers the fall of Lucifer, as described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. I think it was nice of whoever the numbering that Isaiah comes before Ezekiel, and 14 is, is half of the 28, and I can remember where those texts are when I need to look them up. But um, other than that, I don't think we can explain Lucifer's fall. Okay, We can report about it, but we can't explain it. There's two paragraphs in Sunday's lesson that um, I'd like to read. It says, uh, one is a quote from the Great Controversy. It is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse be found or cause be shown for its existence? It would cease to be sin. And then the very next paragraph Replace the word sin with evil, and the statement works just as well. It is impossible to explain the origin of evil so as to give a reason for its existence. Evil is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. Could excuse for it be found or cause be shown for its existence, it would cease to be evil. That's enough on Sunday. Monday's lesson, more than head knowledge. What is your favorite Bible text? Now, we already talked about some of these, about favorite things of of protection. But what is your favorite text? Do you have one? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. Good. Anyone else? Have a favorite text. I like 1 Corinthians 13, but not all the love verses. I like it at the start where it says, you can have all the faith and all the knowledge, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. That's the part I like. Anyone else? Psalm 139. And? The entire Psalm. Oh, the entire 139. All right. Who else? Someone else had a, a favorite text. John 316. John 316. There's so many. There are so many. I've gotten this little nasty habit of choosing the text after everyone's favorite. <laughs> I think it's 1 Corinthians 2.8 2, or something like that. It says, um, I have not seen nor ear heard. There has entered the heart of man what God has prepared for them. You know what the next text says? That's been shown to us by the Spirit. So it's always used to say, oh, we can't have no fathomable thing that God has prepared. And yet, the, 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 if you read the whole chapter, it's God has revealed all this to us. And that text is meant to show, oh, the scripture says this, but really God has shown us everything. So I have this nasty habit of ruining people's favorite texts. But um, anyway, some of my favorite texts, Psalms 8, about the creativeness of God. Incredible. What is man that, thou, that you have mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that you visited him. Uh, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? And on and on and on. A whole chapter is wonderful. I also like Psalms 32, 8 through 11. Psalms 32, 8, often people quote. They don't choose to quote 32, 9. 32, 8. The Lord says, I will teach you the way you should go. I will instruct you and advise you. Verse 9. Don't be stupid like a horse or a mule, which must be controlled with a bit and bridle to go where you must go. The wicked will have to suffer, but those who trust in the Lord are protected by his constant love. You that are righteous, be glad and rejoice because of what the Lord has done. You that obey him, shout for joy. We need to have some understanding of what we're doing. You have favorite texts. Do you have a text that you don't like? Russell already mentioned the text that I don't like. Genesis 3. I almost never read it. Okay? Uh, Personal revelation here. There are certain movies that I don't watch. Either I've heard they're very graphic and violent or whatever, and I I don't want to see it. 
any version of the Titanic movies, I know what happens. It sinks. Okay? You know, a movie came out in 1988. In the United States, it was called A Cry in the Dark. It was, it was listed as evil angels everywhere else. It starred Meryl Streep, who was nominated for an Oscar because of her performance. She represented Lindy Chamberlain. And the story was of an Adventist couple who went camping out in the outback of Australia. And a dingo came and stole the baby out of the tent. And then no one but Lindy had any information about what had happened. And so because of this situation, essentially the couple was put on trial. It so happened that the movie was shot, produced, and everything else. Two months before it was released, the Chamberlains were exonerated by the finding of um, the garment that uh, the little baby had been wearing, and it was in a dingo's den. But, but that was totally unknown when the movie was being made. Okay? She'd already served time. Yeah, she'd, she'd been in jail and everything else. It, it, was, it was travesty. And, and it was a terrible a tragedy for their family and everything else. In 1988, when the movie came out, my wife was invited to go to this movie by a friend, a close friend. And they went to a matinee. Now, they knew the story because they had heard the Adventist story within the uh, thing. And so they knew what was the story, was, but they were going to see the movie. They were sitting in the, in the movie and Meryl Streep was laying the baby in the sleeping area and turned to leave the tent. And my wife's friend stood up in the middle of the theater and says, don't leave your baby. <laughs> That's Genesis 3. For me, I want to stand up and say, don't go near the tree. (laughs) (gasps) In Monday's lesson, it says, Eve had all the knowledge she needed for correct behavior. Now, I have to tell you something. You may not believe it, But it's scientifically proven over and over again. Information has no impact on our behavior. Do you realize that? In healthcare, I'm in healthcare. The only time that people listen to me is during an acute problem when they're hurting. They come in with a broken bone, they listen to me, they get a cast put on, they go to surgery, and they listen to me during that time. Science says the only time that the public, the patients, listen to their health care provider is during an acute episode in which they're having an acute problem which can be short-term relieved. Intermediate health issues, very poor correlation. Long-term health issues, no correlation whatsoever. You can have all the knowledge in the world, you will not act on it. So this has gone over and over again. Diabetes mellitus, obesity, hypertension, dental health, all these issues. You guys know the answers. It doesn't change your behavior one bit. Beliefs in climate change or worldview. They interview people. What do you believe about this? And then look at their, their behavior. It has no correlation whatsoever. So I brought a couple studies about sex education. We are spending billions of dollars a year in this country on sex education. In 2002, a study published in the British Medical Journal examined 26 programs that included school-based programs, multifaceted programs, family planning, clinic-based programs, as well as abstinence programs in the U.S. and Canada. The results, quote, The interventions did not delay initiation of sexual intercourse in young women or men, did not improve the use of birth control at any point with intercourse or at last intercourse or either men or women, and did not reduce the pregnancy rates in young women. Another study, 
well-designed, well-delivered sex ed program in Scotland was also published in the British Medical Journal. The result, when the intervention group was compared with the conventional sex education group, there were no differences in sexual activity or sexual risk by the age of 16. Then there is 2001 survey by Dr. Douglas Kirby, over 300 programs of all sorts. Most studies school-based, school-linked health centers revealed no effect on student sexual behavior or contraceptive use. 2016, a little more recent, the Cochrane Review. Studies were randomized controlled trials from Europe, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa. Most were of high quality, had follow-ups between 18 months and 7 years. The sex education programs they investigated included peer and teacher-led education and innovative use of drama and group work. What did the Cochrane Review find? One finding of the review was that providing a small cash payment or giving away a free school uniform can encourage students to remain at school, especially in places where there are financial barriers to attending. Such incentives to stay at school reduce pregnancy rates by about a quarter and also reduce sexual transmitted diseases in both girls and boys. So if you're at school, you can't be somewhere else doing other things. However, the more surprising and no doubt controversial finding to many will be the admission that the mainstay of the current approach to sex education is not working. School-based sexual and reproductive health programs are widely accepted and implemented as an approach to reducing high-risk sexual behavior among adolescents. But the Cochrane Review found that sex education programs do not reduce pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases among the young. In fact, they had no effect on adolescent pregnancy rates and sexually transmitted disease rates. Quote, as they are currently designed, sex education programs alone probably have no effect on the number of young people infected with HIV, sexually transmitted diseases, or the number of pregnancies, said lead author of the review, Dr. Mason Jones. This was regardless of the program, whether it was church-based, abstinence programs, or other programs, they didn't work. Information has no corresponding to human behavior. I've been to a lot of evangelistic meetings where we give a lot of information. Yeah. Exactly. Doesn't work. So on Monday's lesson, it talks about knowledge and how knowledge is important and all that sort of stuff. And yet it says at the last paragraph, yet despite this knowledge, she did wrong anyway. If even in the perfect environment of Eden, knowledge itself wasn't enough to keep Eve and then Adam, who also knew the truth, from sitting, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that knowledge alone is enough to save us now. We need to know the word of God tells us, but along with knowing that, we need the kind of surrender which we will obey what he tells us. Why would you surrender, though, to someone you don't know? You're not going to give your life, you're not going to make decisions based on what God tells you if you don't trust God. The original sin for Adam and Eve was not the eating of the fruit, though. It was the loss of trust of God. As has been said in this class many times before, lies believed leads to the loss of love and trust. Loss of love and trust lead to selfishness and attempts at self-preservation. If we can be diverted away from love and trust to seek our own selfish ways, the battle is lost. James 1, 14 and 15, but we are tempted when we are drawn away and trapped by our own evil desires. Then our evil desires conceive, give birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Yeah, the, the knowledge versus behavior thing is a real challenge because that is the mode of belief within the world. Spend more money, create more information, and it's going to change behavior. It doesn't work. Any comments before I move on? That does explain quite a bit. I mean, I, I was unaware of these studies or this, you know, this particular phenomenon, but it, it explains quite a bit of uh, what we see in the world today. There's hardly been a time in history when we have We've had less knowledge available, and yet behavior is not changing for the better. If anything, it's, it's, it's a race to the bottom. 
There's been a lot said over this past several weeks over against violence and uh, gun control and various other things, and I don't want to get to that topic. But knowledge does not have much to do with behavior. So what does change behavior? Relationships change behavior. There's a report that I looked talk about the sex education thing. I, I was trying to find the report several years back. I got you know I get all this email stuff sent to me that they think is important, which most of it isn't. One story came to me, and I, was, I looked it up. I tried to look it up, and I couldn't find it quickly last night or this past week when I was looking. And it was a story of a town in Idaho, and you may have heard about it, but they had what they felt was an unrealistically high pregnancy rate in young. Uh, teens. And so they brought in the best information possible and started a program as kind of described in the previous research, and it had no effect. And so one of the town fathers said, well, I'm going to do something personally about it. And he went to the high school and he learned the name of every high school student. And every day after his work, he went to the high school And he spoke personally with someone at that high school. He learned their name. He learned their story, etc. And then he started recruiting his friends to do the same. And essentially the town fathers got together and bought into this program. And the pregnancy rate dropped to one-fourth of what it had been before. By adults being involved in the kids' lives knowing who they were, knowing what their issues were, and knowing their name. Now, for me, I have this genetic thing where I cannot remember a name. (laughs) I recognize many of you by by faith. When Russell walks around the corner and I come up, I, I cannot come up with his name. Okay? A highway patrolman stopped me in Arizona once. He was really upset at me. I was driving a a pickup truck that had no license tag and and many other violations. And what is your name, young man? I had to read my name off my driver's license. (laughs) Everyone in my office knows I can't remember their name, you know, so, you know, that's kind of a given. You know, and so I, that's just a whatever. I have this defect. In medical school, it was a challenge because there's many things you're question, on, the, on the quest about names. If they could just give me a hint about what it was about, I could tell them all about it. But if I had to come up with a de novo name, it was, I was sunk. And I was very happy for multi-choice questions because I, I could recognize what they're asking, but I could not come up with it de novo. But I do believe in relationship. I think it's critical that we know who we are associating with, the employees that we work with. I've tried to remember the name of the cleaning lady. I got it close last night. It was as I was leaving, she was coming in, and I was, was like, oh, brother. And I called her Cindy, and it was Cynthia. Well, that was, that was as close as I can get. Personal relationships do make a difference in behavior. And our personal relationship with God the Father will make a, a change in our behavior by his spirit coming into our lives, but we, we, that will not happen if we don't know them. All right. But the knowledge is important because that person that is your, the personal relationship you have with, if they don't have knowledge to give you, you have to have that knowledge to give that person so that they can understand and make choices for themselves. So knowledge is important, but the relationship is more important. Yes, uh, uh, don't get me wrong. Uh, before I, I leave, you know, I think knowledge is critical, okay? So my daily reading of, the, of God's Word is critical. Without that, I will not know Him. I will not know about Balaam unless I read about Balaam. I will not know about Elisha and his servant unless I read about Elisha and his servant. And I will not know about God unless I read about the stories as evidence in, in the Bible that Describe. Unfortunately, though, a lot of this is stories that we have to be processed. I don't think the Bible is so much a code book by which we live as it is a demonstration of how God has interacted with humans in all sorts of ways that 
boggle my mind. Well, knowledge even as in with experience. I'm not saying just, you know, I mean, there's a lot yes. of knowledge that you gain from experience as someone older that you can give to someone younger, but I also believe the peer, peer once you get a, someone that's young to understand some information, then that can go to another peer a lot easier than, you know, maybe me to that peer, I mean, to that younger person, so... And that person has to be wanting their information. I am aware of a situation where there's a young woman who is being abused by her significant other. That will never end until she dies because she is not receptive to any information about that. Okay? Unfortunately, we sometimes get trapped by the devil and we believe his lies. And we will never escape unless we want to. Just the gentleman over here mentioned that you know, our evangelistic campaigns have always been uh, geared toward the delivery of knowledge and information. And while that is important, I think what you're saying is it won't change behavior. And you can see time and time again, you baptize 30 people into your small church and there's no real, you know, now they emphasize a lot on, okay, we need to have people to build relationships with these people. And if that doesn't happen, they drift away. They have the knowledge, but without a relationship, it does not change their behavior. Approximately 20 years ago, I um, went back to school, much to my wife's dismay. And I had a year of structured education, and then I had a break, and then I had an opportunity to go to Italy for two months for uh, additional training. The problem was the two months of training in Italy and the year of education were separated by three months of nothing. And my bank account was not amenable to three months of nothing. And so I took a locum tenens job in which I flew to a town in Texas and worked at a VA hospital in Texas. Now I had been doing, taking care of nothing but children for a year and I arrived in Texas and showed up the next day and they had me do three total joints on elderly people. Fortunately, I'd been doing it for 10 years before. I'd gone back to my training, and so I was very familiar with it. But when we were there, an evangelistic series came through. We were in a church. We were attending a church that was had a membership of approximately 120, maybe 150. I don't remember exactly exact numbers. But it was not much more than 100 that would show up every week. The evangelistic series, there were 300 and something baptisms. I've worried and prayed about that church because unless something happened culturally to accept those members, I think that 20 years later there'll be 110 members in that church. Okay? Because it's relationship that makes all the difference. Have you checked back with the church to see what it is? I've been afraid to. <laughs> I don't read Genesis 3. <laughs> you don't want to ask information you don't really want. <laughs> and I can't do anything about it. Okay? And so I do pray for them. Okay? You need to see if your prayers have been answered, though. I'll know that in heaven. <laughs> Because many times we do not hear the answers to our prayers in this life. And if I go fact-checking, I don't have all the information. And even the information I'm given sometimes is not that good. The devil tends to skew my perception of that information. In discussing this uh, information doesn't leak thing, it said, okay, what did? And they looked at people who were introduced into a social group that by coercion of the social group, the group encouraged and molded behavior. And once the behavior changed, their beliefs also changed. I don't know how to use that. Tim will, but I don't, I don't know how to, how to do, do that. But I think that's what we do in children. In childhood, we teach them to brush their teeth. We teach them to stay out of the street or stay in the street or stay out of the house or whatever. And 
over time, they gain behavioral changes that are normative for their environment. When I was looking for a job at the end of my residency, I interviewed or found out about jobs predominantly on the West Coast because that's where I trained. But I had people come to me from anywhere from East L.A. to Idaho offer me jobs and tell me about what a wonderful place it was to raise kids. And I was like, really? <laughs> they, they believed that they were doing a wonderful job raising their children. And maybe information doesn't relate to um, behavior and whatnot, etc. But I chose a different location to live based on what I perceived was the needs of my children. Now, I will agree that God has sent various people to horrible places to live their lives as light bearers of his love and that he will protect and guide them. But we're not immune. Even when God is directing us, we're not immune to the environment. And so I'd like to close with a couple of statements about this whole topic of the last day events and whatnot. When Christ said... I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He didn't say that bad things wouldn't happen to us. Okay? When, in his last prayer for his disciples, John 17, I pray that you not take them out of the world, but that you protect them. When he said his disciples were protected... What were they protected from? They were protected from the evil one. They were not protected from this world. How many of the disciples were martyrs? All but one that I know of. Okay? They were not protected from bad things that happened in their lives, but they were protected from the evil one, and they will live their life in eternity. Protected by his spirit. He is with us. He does protect us, but in ways that we do not understand all the time. And he protects us from the evil one. So, in my trials, I have his his presence. When I went through the the loss of my job in in North Carolina, I, I walked on the street saying, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Only to realize it was a major blessing in my life. Okay? Didn't know it at the time. He is with us. He is guiding us. He is with us in spite of bad things that happen to us. And so I think we have to be careful about we understanding about when it says he's going to protect us. Okay? I think he does. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of living with you, talking to you, and learning of you, but help us that we may become so associated with you that your life is ours, that we, that we may live the life that you would have us to live, and that may others see you. May we work for others. Amen.